welcome to this week's episode of Dead America. I'm Ed Waters, your host, and this week we're going to talk about a very exciting woman. This woman was born March 1822 and died March 10, 1913. She was an American abolitionist and a political activist. Born into slavery, she escaped and subsequently made some 13 missions to rescue approximately 70 enslaved people, including family members and friends. Using the network of anti-slavery activists and safe houses known as the Underground Railroad, she later helped abolitionist John Brown recruit men for his raid on Harper's Ferry. During the American Civil War, she served as an armed scout and spy for the Union Army. In her later years, she was an activist in the struggle for women's suffrage. This individual was Harriet Tubman. Let's not waste any time and get into this week's episode of Dead America. You've heard the saying, when things get tough, the tough get going. Well, Harriet Tubman fits that bill to a T. She was born a slave in Dorchester County, Maryland, and was beaten and whipped by her various masters as a child. Early in life, she suffered a traumatic head wound when an irate slave owner threw a heavy metal weight intending to hit another slave but hitting her instead. The injury caused dizziness, pain, and spells of hypersomnia, which occurred throughout her life. After her injury, Tubman began experiencing strange visions and vivid dreams, which she ascribed to premonitions from God. These experiences, combined with her Methodist upbringing, led her to become devoutly religious. In 1849, Tubman escaped to Philadelphia, then immediately returned to Maryland to rescue her family. Slowly, one group at a time, she brought relatives with her out of the state and eventually guided dozens of other slaves to freedom. Traveling by night and in extreme secrecy, Tubman or Moses as she was called, never lost a passenger. After the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed, she helped guide fugitives farther north into British North America and helped newly freed slaves find work. Tubman met John Brown in 1858 and helped him plan and recruit supporters for his 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry. When the Civil War began, Tubman worked for the Union Army, first as a cook and nurse, and then as an armed scout and spy, the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. She guided the raid at Combahee Ferry, which liberated more than 700 slaves. After the war, she retired to the family home on property she had purchased in 1859 in Auburn, New York, 
where she cared for her aging parents, she was active in the woman's suffrage movement until illness overtook her, and she had to be admitted to a home for elderly African Americans that she had helped to establish earlier in her years. After her death in 1913, she became an icon of courage and freedom. Tubman was born Armenta or Minty Ross to enslaved parents Harriet, known as Rit, Green, and Ben Ross. Rit was owned by Mary Pattison Bordess and later her son Edward. Ben was held by Anthony Thompson, who became Mary Bordess' second husband and who ran a large plantation near the Blackwater River in the Madison area of Dorchester County, Maryland. As with many slaves in the United States, neither the exact year nor place of Tubman's birth is really known, and historians defer as to the best estimated Kate Larson records the year as 1822 based on a midwife payment and several other historical documents, including her runaway advertisement. While Jean Humitz says the best current evidence suggests that Tubman was born in 1820, but it might have been a year or two later. Catherine Clinton notes that Tubman reported the year of her birth as 1825, while her death certificate lists 1815 and her gravestone lists 1820. Modesty, Tubman's maternal grandmother, arrived in the United States on a slave ship from Africa. No information is available about her other ancestors. As a child, Tubman was told that she seemed like an Asante person because of her character traits, though no evidence exists to confirm or deny this lineage. Her mother, Rit, who may have had a white father, was a cook for the Bordess family. Her father, Ben, was a skilled woodsman who managed the timber work on Thompson's plantation. They married around 1808 and according to court records, had nine children together. Ritt struggled to keep her family together as slavery threatened to tear it apart. Edward Bordas sold three of her daughters, separating them from the family forever. When a trader from Georgia approached Bordas about buying Ritt's youngest son, Moses, she hid him for a month, aided by other slaves and free blacks in the community. At one point, she confronted her owner about the sale. Finally, Bordes and the Georgia man come towards the slave's quarter to seize the child, where Rit told them, you are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. Bordes backed away and abandoned the cell. 
Tubman's biographers agree that stories told about this event within the family influenced her belief in the possibilities of resistance. Tubman's mother was assigned to the big house and had scarce time for her family. Consequently, as a child, Tubman took care of her younger brother and baby, as was typical in large families. When she was five or six years old, Bordes hired her out as a nursemaid to a woman named Miss Susan. Tubman was ordered to care for the baby and rock its cradle as it slept. When it woke up and cried, she was whipped. She later recounted a particular day when she was lashed five times before breakfast. She carried the scars for the rest of her life. She found ways to resist such as running away for five days, wearing layers of clothing as protection against beatings, and fighting back. As a child, Tubman also worked at the home of a planter named James Cook. She had to check the muskrat traps in nearby marshes. Even after contracting measles, she became so ill that Cook sent her back to Bordes, where her mother nursed her back to health. Bordes then hired her out again. She spoke later of her acute childhood homesickness. As she grew older and stronger, she was assigned to field and forest work, driving oxen, plowing, and hauling logs. As an adolescent, Tubman suffered a severe head injury when an overseer threw a two-pound metal weight at another slave who was attempting to flee. The weight struck Tubman instead, which she said broke my skull. Bleeding and unconscious, she was returned to her owner's house and laid on the seat of a loom, where she remained without medical care for two days. After this incident, Tubman frequently experienced extreme painful headaches. She also began having seizures and would seemingly fall unconscious. Although she claimed to be aware of her surroundings while appearing to be asleep, this condition remained with her for the rest of her life. Larson suggests she may have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy as a result of that injury. After her injury, Tubman began experiencing the visions in vivid dreams, which she interpreted as revelations from God. These spiritual experiences had a profound effect on Tubman's personality, and she acquired a passionate faith in God. Although Tubman was illiterate, she was told Bible stories by her mother and likely attended a Methodist church with her family. She rejected the teachings of the New Testament that urged slaves to be obedient and found guidance in the Old Testament tales of deliverance. This religious perspective informed her actions throughout her life. Anthony Thompson promised to free Tubman's father at the age of 45. After Thompson died, his son followed through with that promise. In 1840, Tubman's father continued working 
as a timber estimator and foreman for the Thompson family. Several years later, Tubman contracted a white attorney and paid him $5 to investigate her mother's legal status. The lawyer discovered that a former owner had issued instructions that Tubman's mother, Rit, like her husband, would be freed at the age of 45. The record showed that a similar provision would apply to Rit's children and that any children born after she reached 45 years of age were legally free. But the Pattison and Bordess families ignored this stipulation when they inherited the slaves. Challenging it legally was an impossible task for Tubman. Around 1844, she married a free black man named John Tubman. Although little is known about him or their time together, the union was complicated because of her slave status. The mother's status dictated that of children, and any children born to Harriet and John would be enslaved. Such blended marriages, free people of color marrying enslaved people, were not uncommon on the eastern shore of Maryland, where by this time half the black population was free. Most African American families had both free and enslaved members. Larson suggests that they might have planned to buy Tubman's freedom. Tubman changed her name from Arminta to Harriet soon after her marriage. Though the exact time is unclear, Larson suggests this happened right after the wedding, and Clinton suggests that it coincided with Tubman's plan to escape from slavery. She adopted her mother's name, possibly as part of a religious conversion or to honor another relative. In 1849, Tubman became ill again, which diminished her value as a slave. Edward Bordas tried to sell her, but could not find a buyer. Angry at him for trying to sell her and for continuing to enslave her relatives, Tubman began to pray for her owner, asking God to make him change his ways. She said later, I prayed all night long for my master till the 1st of March and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. When it appeared as though a sale was being concluded, I changed my prayer. She said, 1st of March, I begin to pray, Oh Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him. Lord, and take him out of the way. A week later, Bordes died, and Tubman expressed regret for her earlier sediments. As in many estate settlements, Bordes's death increased the likelihood that Tubman would be sold and her family broken apart. His widow Eliza began working to sell the family's slaves. Tubman refused to wait for the Bordes family to decide her fate. Despite her husband's effort to dissuade her, there was one of two things 
I had a right to, she explained later. Liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. Tubman and her brothers, Ben and Henry, escaped from slavery on September 17, 1849. Tubman had been hired out to Dr. Anthony Thompson, the son of her father's former owner, who owned a large plantation in an area called Popular Neck in neighboring Caroline County. It is likely her brothers labored for Thompson as well because the slaves were hired out to another household. Eliza Bordes probably did not recognize their absence as an escape attempt for some time. Two weeks later, she posted a runaway notice in the Cambridge Democrat, offering a reward of up to 100 for each slave returned. Once they had left, Tubman's brother had second thoughts. Ben may have just become a father and two men went back, forcing Tubman to return with them. Soon afterward, Tubman escaped again, this time without her brothers. She tried to send word of her plans beforehand to her mother. She sang a coded song to marry a trusted fellow slave that was a farewell. I'll meet you in the morning, she intoned. I'm bound for the promised land. While her exact route is unknown, Tubman made use of the network known as the Underground Railroad. This informal but well-organized system was composed of free and enslaved blacks, whites, abolitionists, and other activists. Most prominent among the latter in Maryland at the time were members of the Religious Society of Friends, often called Quakers. The Preston area near Polk Neck contained a substantial Quaker community and was probably an important first stop during Tubman's escape. From there, she probably took a common route for fleeing slaves northeast along the Choptank River through Delaware and then north into Pennsylvania. A journey of nearly 90 miles by foot. It would have taken between five days and three weeks. Tubman had to travel by night guided by the North Star and trying to avoid slave catchers eager to collect rewards for fugitive slaves, the conductors in the Underground Railroad used deceptions for protection. At an early stop, the lady of the house instructed Tubman to sweep the yard so as to seem to be working for the family. When night fell, the family hid her in a cart and took her to the next friendly house. Given her familiarity with the woods, and marshes of the region. Tubman likely hid in these locales during the day. Particulars of her first journey remain shrouded in secrecy because other fugitive slaves used the routes. Tubman did not discuss them until later in life. She crossed into Pennsylvania 
with a feeling of relief and awe and recalled the experience years later. When I found that I had crossed that line, I looked at my hand to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields and I felt like I was in heaven. After reaching Philadelphia, Tubman thought of her family. I was a stranger in a strange land, she said later. My father, my mother, my brothers, and sister and friends were in Maryland, but I was free, and they should be free. She worked odd jobs and saved money. The U.S. Congress, meanwhile, passed the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which heavily punished aiding escape and forced law enforcement officials, even in states that had outlawed slavery, to assist in their capture. The law increased risk for escaped slaves, more of whom therefore sought refuge in southern Ontario. Because the Fugitive Slave Law had made the northern United States a more dangerous place for escaped slaves to remain, many escaped slaves began migrating to southern Ontario. In December 1851, Tubman guided an unidentified group of 11 fugitives, possibly including the bullies and several others she had helped rescue earlier northward. There is evidence to suggest that Tubman and her group stopped at the home of abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass. Douglass and Tubman admired one another greatly as they both struggled against slavery. When an early biography of Tubman was being prepared in 1868, Douglas wrote a letter to honor her. He compared his own efforts with hers, writing, The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public and I have received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have wrought in the day, you in the night. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Excepting John Brown of scarred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. Over 11 years, Tubman returned repeatedly to eastern shores of Maryland, recruiting some 70 slaves in about 13 expeditions including her other brothers, Henry, Ben, and Robert, their wives, and some of their children. 
She also provided specific instructions to 50 to 60 additional fugitives who escaped to the north. Because of her efforts, she was nicknamed Moses, alluding to the prophet in the book of Exodus who led the Hebrews to freedom from Egypt. One of her last missions into Maryland was to retrieve her aging parents. There is so much more that you can learn about Harriet Tubman. This woman was remarkable and she endured so much and she freed so many people from the clutches of these individuals that want to enslave, entrap others. We all should thank Harriet Tubman for what she gave history, what she did for the memory of so many, and how much she went through. Remarkable woman. Look her up, Harriet Tubman. There's so much to know about this woman. Thank you for joining us. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. And that's going to wrap it up for this season of Dead America. We're going to take a few weeks off for the holidays. I hope you enjoy them. Share, like, subscribe. And wait for the next episode of Dead America. Ed Waters, out.